Welcome back to Cato's Summit on Financial Regulation. Today, we have a program entitled Fair Shares, Retail Investing, and the Future of Equities Markets. We just heard a great panel on equity market structure and retail investors. There was a lively discussion about payment for order flow and about off-exchange trading, in addition to a number of other things. Uh, if you joined us, that was great. If you missed it, We'll be posting a video of it soon, and I definitely recommend checking it out. Right now, we are very honored to present a fireside chat with SEC Commissioner Alad Roisman. I'm going to take a minute to introduce Commissioner Roisman before we start the chat. Um, we're very honored to have him with us today. Commissioner Roisman was appointed by President Trump to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and was sworn into office on September 11, 2018. Commissioner Roisman joined the SEC from the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, where he served as chief counsel. As counsel to the committee, he advised on securities, financial regulation, and international financial matters. Before working in the Senate, he served as counsel to SEC Commissioner Dan Gallagher, focusing on enforcement and policy relating to U.S. equity, fixed income markets, the asset management industry, and international regulation of capital markets. Prior to joining the SEC, he held positions as a chief counsel at NYSE Euronext and as a law firm associate in New York. Commissioner Roisman earned his bachelor's degree from Cornell University and his JD from the Boston University School of Law. And SEC's commissioner's attention is pulled in many directions. And during his tenure, Commissioner Roisman has been an advocate for reforms relating to the proxy voting systems and streamlining the exempt offering framework among other things, including a focus on equity market structure. Thank you for joining us today, Commissioner. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let's go ahead and start chatting. Um, in addition to everything that I just mentioned that you've been interested, you've spoken at length about equity market structure. Equity market structure is something that's usually of interest only to a select few. But with the rise of zero commission trading, we've been hearing very public conversations about topics that are typically buried pretty deeply in the province of market structure specialists, including payment for order flow and best execution. The focus of these discussions seems to be solely on whether retail investors are getting the best price for their trades when their broker accepts payment for order flow. But these concepts are all a little bit more complicated than that, aren't they? So first of all, thank you so much for, again, for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm sorry I missed the first panel. Uh, as I was telling you, Jen, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to watching this uh, in its entirety because I think it's a great uh, group of uh, not only moderators, but, uh, but participants. So before I go any further, let me just give my, my standard disclaimer that my views are my own and don't necessarily, necessarily represent um, those of my fellow commissioners or, or the commission. So as you noted, as the case after the emergence of usually any scaled market event or, or trend, um, public disclosure tends to kind of rediscover issues, uh, especially in market structure that the commission and the industry have been grappling with for, for a long time. So payment for order flow and best X are certainly two that have gotten a lot of attention. So I think it's important to remember that the issues aren't new. Uh, the commission and the industry have talked about these issues for decades. 30 years ago, the commission determined that a broker can accept payment for order flow, but payment for order flow can interfere with their efforts to obtain best X for its customers. 
And over the years, we've continued to consider the issue and decided to require disclosures um, as, a we, as a way to allow brokers to accept payment for order books. If you think about it, we recently tackled this issue just three years ago. We updated our 606 rules to provide more granular disclosures about both the amount of payment for order flow received and the terms of these arrangements. Um, and for those who are sort of market structure wonks, it's really kind of really articulated well in footnote 397 of, of rule 606. So all of this is to say, we have a comprehensive regime that's designed both to hold best X uh, above all else and provide disclosures as a means to mitigate these conflicts. I personally don't know why we would abandon this approach. I think the second thing we should think about is it's not really clear whether today's conversation is about payment for order flow or about wholesalers or something else. As we know, brokers have long sent the majority of their retail orders to wholesalers, irrespective of whether they get payment for order flow or not. And we need to recognize that there are benefits that wholesalers can provide retail investors and make sure that we keep, as a first principle, do no harm. So I don't mean to say that there's nothing we should be doing to improve market structure and uh, what investors are, are able to get. Um, I've previously made some suggestions in this arena, but we need to make sure that we're articulating a problem before we try to honestly solve it. In the prior panel, and I think in, in ways that you've addressed before, you've talked about a potential need for additional disclosure or better disclosure um, with respect to either best execution or payment for order flow. Uh, you referenced the, the updates to the 606 reports. Is there anything else that you see that is ripe for doing in this space now, or at least ripe for exploring? So I think uh, first and foremost, I think, and I've advocated this for a long time now, it's we should be providing a non-prescriptive guidance on, or honestly an interpretation of the requirements for best acts or best executions, um, best execution. You know, firms have told me that it, at times it can actually be really difficult in a sort of a price high market to think creatively about what it means to seek best X. No two investors, stocks, or even orders are uh, alike or necessarily alike. So I think best X is intended to incorporate many of these differences to the extent that we can provide guidance to the marketplace to help them achieve it. Uh, I think we should be doing it. Um, I think things like, let's talk about what relevant factors, uh, you know, I think brokers should be thinking about. Uh, they should explain key terms, and I think we should discuss methods to assess alternative execution venues. I also think it's important to realize that there's differences between institutional orders and retail orders. All these things are things that are sort of uh, everyday uh, considerations for the marketplace, but it'd be helpful, I think, for the commission to, to further articulate it. I also think we should be updating our execution quality disclosures. So we talked about 606. I think we should talk about 605. Um, all markets publish monthly execution quality reports. That's 605. These reports were conceived 20 years ago when the market was completely different. So I think the reports should too. Um, earlier this year, I talked about uh, potentially asking retail brokers to publish reports about the execution quality their customers' orders get at each of the markets that they route to. I think this would actually foster a greater competition and help facilitate best acts. And I think if we keep focused on best X and competition, I think markets and investors will only be better uh, benefited, I should say. Great, thank you. And I'd like to move on to kind of another hot topic that's been in the news. It's, it's interesting how many of these topics we've had these days. Um, and that's the topic of gamification. Um, 
we've been hearing a lot about the concept of gamification of trading. And in fact, the SEC has recently put out a request for public input on what it's calling digital engagement practices. Um, we've also seen congressional interest in this concept of gamification. And, and I don't mean to suggest that digital engagement practices and gamification are, are one and the same. Um, and in fact, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts in part because gamification doesn't really have a, a set definition. When you hear these terms, what, what do you think about? So I think you're right. I don't know. I mean, I've yet to hear sort of a concrete definition for gamification. Um, but I think it's important to think about uh, what, what's out there and how people can engage. So two weeks ago, as you noted, we issued a request for comment uh, about what we're calling digital engagement practices uh, for both brokers and IAs, which means both mobile apps and, and, and websites um, and their digital platforms. And some of these DEPs can take the form of whether it's design elements or features, others can include engagement approaches or, or methods. So, you know, DEPs as defined in our request for comment also include sort of the underlying analytical or technological methods uh, that might, you know, power a particular feature. And I think what we're trying to do is get as much engagement from the outside um, about what they think of these practices and what they know about it. Uh, if you leave with nothing else from today's uh, sort of discussion, I really encourage you to both um, submit whatever thoughts you have to the commission, meet with us, but also come to me. My door, certainly my virtual door is open. Um, and this is a place where I think there's a lot more learning we could do. So I think we asked a lot of questions uh, in the RFC. Um, and I think one of the things that kind of shows is that there is sort of this new uh, new way that people are engaging in the marketplace and new methods that uh, people are using to engage with investors. So I think the RFC was a prudent approach um, and only after we kind of get the factual information do I think we can make a decision about what, if anything, uh, needs to change or uh, uh, honestly uh, be rethought. And I'll put in a plug for your, your request for comment to our audience. Um, of course, anyone can submit a comment, but what it was slightly unique about that, that request for comment was that there's a, a form to make it easy for retail investors and individuals to submit information about their experiences with trading apps. So um, if anyone is watching and interested in letting the SEC know how you experience these apps, um, it's very easy to do so. <laughs> um, Kind of digging a little bit deeper on the, the gamification digital engagement practice question, um, and this might be asking you to, to think about it outside of the idea that you're still collecting information, but do you have a sense of what role you think the SEC should be playing in regulating the design of trading apps? So I think we, we've got to be pretty careful about that. Um, I think one of the things that's been a hallmark of our, our markets and honestly uh, a benefit to all investors in the marketplace is uh, I think technology and innovation um, and as a result of it honestly you can see over the last year or so you know more individuals are investing at an earlier age and I think that's honestly a great thing I think learning to invest when you're young helps people make honestly mistakes early on learn from the mistakes and honestly continue to save and grow so I think technology can help broaden access to investing and provide meaningful education to investors, uh, both those that are new and ones that are sort of seasoned. I think we should be encouraging the continued development of technologies that can help these investors learn, 
meet their goals and ultimately save for things like retirement. So when I think about what our role is, I think our roles have always been and should continue to be honestly technologically neutral. So ultimately a lot of the questions, uh, you know, about whether something's a problem or not will turn on the facts and circumstances. And before we even get there, we need to understand, uh, you know, what technology is and, and how it's being used. Great. And I'd like to, to build on your discussion about new investors and younger investors to talk a little bit about the concept of investor education. We saw last year 10 million new brokerage accounts opened, um, reports that there were 10 million more opened already this year. And a lot of these accounts have been from people who are brand new to the investing world. Um, they've been younger, less wealthy, more diverse. All of those things are great to me. And based on what you just said, it's something that you're supportive of as well. Uh, my question is, you know, investor education is something that's been said to be at the heart of the SEC's mission. And new investors tend to need a little bit more education. Uh, how do you suggest going about educating new investors? How does the SEC reach these folks? Or does the SEC not take on that burden specifically? Um, really, just a little bit more about how do sure. we help people make better decisions with the information they have? So first of all, I think, you know, those statistics are, are honestly astounding, um, if you think about it. And I think, um, as I said earlier, I, I think it's fantastic that more people are interested in investing. I, I think if people can do it at a young age, uh, they'll be able to have a longer on-ramp uh, to build wealth. And I think, honestly, technology and things like fintech have made this process uh, of investing a, a lot easier. And to your point, I think technology is a great way for us to expand investor education. Uh, I think it's always been something that we've done. And most people probably aren't familiar with our rules and requirements um, that the SEC has. And I think if, you know, there's new ways for people to get access to, uh, you know, securities markets, it's also a new way for us to, you know, further our reach and educate uh, investors about things. Um, and I think that is really helpful. Um, I think for me personally, um, when I first started investing, it was really scary. Um, I didn't know if I was making the wrong decision. Uh, I didn't know, you know, putting all your, you know, putting some of your hard-earned money into something which you just didn't feel um, absolute expertise in is, is a really daunting thing. And I think what would have made it easier for me to honestly is to have today's marketplace and today's technology. I think if there could be further discussions and education uh, about things like risk tolerance, diversification, correlation, it'd be great. The other thing I think is fantastic is we have literally uh, uh, a, an internet now that uh, not only facilitates, but encourages discourse amongst, amongst a bunch of people uh, about uh, things like trading. Now, I think it's important for us to uh, ensure that people are getting accurate information and are being misinformed or are honestly uh, subject to, to fraud or deceit. Uh, but I do think uh, it shows that this is a medium that is uh, enabling more and more people to uh, feel comfortable within our markets. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've seen Wall Street Journal headlines about how TikTok is becoming a, a hotbed right. of financial literacy advice. And, and it's amazing to me. I think I, I've missed the TikTok generation myself a bit, but it, it's great to see different places where people are going to learn information about investing and, and where they can learn from 
people that are speaking their language um, in a way that that helps them learn and and learn about risk taking and diversification. Uh, actually, kind of moving on past that to the diversification question, uh, I'd like to shift gears a little bit to a topic that we're going to be covering a little bit later today, and that's the accredited investor standard. Um, for those of the who are in the audience that might not be aware of this, the, the accredited investor standard generally prohibits individuals who make less than $200,000 a year or who have less than a million dollars in assets from investing in most exempt offerings, um, aka private offerings, not the kind that you would see on the NYSE. Um, you've called this system fundamentally unfair, unequal, and unjustified, and noting that wealth is a crude measure of a person's ability to make financial decisions. Last year, we saw a very modest expansion of the accredited investor definition to include individuals who hold certain securities licenses um, and Chairman Gensler has put the definition back on the SEC's agenda for this year. Um, what changes would you make to the accredited investor definition if the agenda change was was your idea? Uh, well, thanks for that. Uh, two, uh, one quick thing. I just following up on your last question, which I, I want to just make a plug is um, I thought you you know you raise a really good point, which is that people, uh, whether it's TikTok. Uh, Twitter, a myriad of uh, different sort of uh, technological or you know social forums uh, are being used to help educate. I, I would love to get more input from investors about what they're using and where they're getting information, so we can expand our outreach and also uh, you know use those as, as forums to, to help educate people. Now, accredited investor, you know, I'm, I was very pleased that we were able to. Uh, modify the definition last year. And it, as you mentioned, it was, it was pretty modest. Uh, we allowed certain people with industry licenses to qualify. Uh, but for the most part, it's still based on uh, wealth, um, I'd say net worth and, and, and income. And so even, I'm, I'm glad we finally moved past that, but I think there's more work that, that honestly should be done. You know, uh, you know the, the example I think of is, it's not perfect, but I, I get to, you know, vote on and approve or disapprove rules relating to financial disclosure, company disclosure, and even enforcement matters uh, where um, it's relating to these rules. Um, but I don't qualify um, based on, you know, knowledge-based uh, to do so. It's, it's a little bit, to me, that it's a little bit strange. And honestly, the better argument to me is that there are people with intimate knowledge of the markets or specific companies or industries who almost certainly have sufficient sophistication to invest their own money in certain enterprises, but they don't qualify under our current uh, income or wealth tests, uh, or even necessarily the, the new FINRA licenses. So I, I honestly think we could, we could be doing a lot more. I'd like to see if you could expand on that a little bit more. You've talked about knowledge-based eligibility, and actually I, I hear you on the you are not able to to invest in these. I, I felt the same way when I when I was at Finra Enforcement, enforcing the same rules, and also unable to to make those types of investments. Um, but do you have any specific proposals worth exploring for expanding knowledge based eligibility? Yeah, I think you know. I honestly think that the knowledge based uh, uh, you know qualifications are are the key. So I think we could think about additional licenses or categories 
or potentially years of experience and roles within the financial services industry, for example, uh, as a potential uh, proxy for, for um, accredited investor uh, sophistication. Um, and also, you know, I think someone hasn't done it yet, but I'd love to see it if someone would come out with a potential proposed test for sophistication um, as a means of showing people's knowledge. Uh, I also, to, to, to kind of further elaborate on something I mentioned earlier, I think people with specific experience within an industry or a business might qualify for investments within that industry. And for example, I think a nurse might qualify as an accredited investor for investments in companies within sort of the medical services and supply industry, just like a farmer should probably qualify within certain agricultural businesses. Like people know where there are needs within their businesses and are often well situated to recognize you know, products and services that will meet those needs. So I think they should be able to invest in the areas where they have specific knowledge. I'd honestly be open to other ways to expand eligibility. You know, I think one of the things that was discussed by the former chair, which I thought was potentially um, interesting and in a good way is potentially uh, investing in a fund that you know, has access to private offerings. Um, that way you're, uh, you, know, you have the benefit of having someone who's a fund manager and an advisor uh, overseeing, uh, I'd say, uh, investment strategies of, of private companies. Thanks. One of the reasons that we're talking about the accredited investor standard um, at all is because we were interested in, or I am interested in having investors have the opportunity to both diversify their funds and their investments, but also permitting them the opportunity to have returns that you can find on some of these private markets. It's been the case that over the past 20 years, Companies are IPOing later. Um, it's taking them a lot longer to get to the public markets. And generally, by the time they get to the public markets, they're past that high growth stage where people could get in on the ground floor and get those big returns. Of course, that comes with commensurate risk as well. Um, yeah. It's the, the risk return, return trade-off. Um, but we're also seeing some innovations in the IPO space lately that, that have been increasing the number of IPOs. Um, and have been allowing companies to come to the public market a little bit earlier. Um, specifically, I'm talking about SPACs and direct listings. Um, I would say SPACs in particular have gotten a lot of press lately, but, but direct listings have also had some recent innovations. Um, is there a, are you concerned with any of these recent innovations in the IPO market, um, particularly something like SPACs? So on the whole, so these offerings seem to be satisfying a need. So when it comes to SPACs, I, I do have some concerns about ensuring that the structure and particularly how the promote works um, is transparent to potential investors. So I think there's room for, for potential improvement there. It's obviously on the agenda. So I think you know, the commission will be tackling this issue. But I think, you know, again, for many companies, they're just probably the best way for them in their minds to, to access the public markets and um, grow. I think for some companies, direct listing simplifies the process in a way that makes sense for their business model. They don't need to necessarily raise funds. They just want to become public and be part of, the, part of uh, you know, our markets and allow ordinary investors to, to participate and hopefully grow with their success. But it's not for everyone and it may not work uh, you know, well for, for every particular company. So I think there's, you know, 
I'm, I'm not necessarily concerned. I think that there is more interest in it. And I think the data will ultimately show, but I think it's great that more companies are, are trying to find a path to, to our public markets. Thank you. And you've been an advocate in the past for simplifying the exempt offering framework, um, allowing companies that are private to, to more easily raise capital. Um, we've just been talking about trying to get companies to the public markets. And it, do you see any tension between simplifying the exempt offering framework and moving companies towards the public markets? Um, and is that is that tension problematic or is it resolvable? So I think there may be uh, tension, but it's not something I want to like overstate. I think companies should be able to use the capital raising structure that works best for them and for their investors. For some companies, that'll mean going public and for others, it'll mean staying private. I think the problem I see is where a company would prefer or wants to be public, but where staying private is what makes sense from a regulatory perspective. That's where we need to dig in and see what specifically is honestly limiting that company from taking the next steps. So do more options for exempt offerings mean we may have fewer public companies? Possibly. But that fact alone, without any additional information, doesn't really strike me as a, an area for concern or a cause for concern, I should say. We are getting close to the end of our conversation, and I wanted to ask you kind of an intentionally broad question, um, because we are having an intentionally broad discussion today about retail investors. Um, I'd like to get your views on what you see as the biggest or most pressing issue affecting retail investors these days. Sure. So while it's not an issue, I'd say, affecting um, retail investors at large per se, I do think that we should consider what more we can do to help prevent older investors from falling prey to fraudsters. And I think this has become particularly acute uh, during the last 18 months. So I think given COVID, people have been isolated from family and friends, especially the elderly are more likely to be socially isolated than many younger people. And given the fact that COVID seems to be especially dangerous for older people, um, these factors have combined to make some of our you know, older citizens uh, feel particularly isolated. And unfortunately, fraudsters have noticed and they prey on, uh, on the lonely and those that are more isolated. So I think one of the things we, we need to think about is what can we do to help further educate people, uh, not just older investors, but loved ones, people in the community about uh, things that they can do to alert folks like myself and the commission and other regulators about uh, schemes that are going on and targeting. And the best thing that I've come up with um, during my time here, and I've spent a fair amount of time trying to uh, engage uh, with myriad of folks, whether it's in the uh, the education, um, uh, to the education industry, in the uh, medical industry, in the regulated industry, uh, and honestly, in the uh, the regulated entity industry, is that the best ideas I've heard have been born out of experience and sort of a private-public partnership of uh, you know uh, raising ideas and discussions. Um, and simple things that uh, sort of seem intuitive late in the game um, uh, have been really kind of impactful. One of the things I really recall is talking to some uh, experts about things that they found have been more impactful about educating um, older, uh, older investors and also uh, getting tipped off for schemes is um, people have found it more successful when you're talking to, to certain communities uh, by sort of talking about 
things to be looking out for for other people that may be uh, targeted for fraud. Um, it's it's been more successful to say um, you should be looking out for the following things uh, that are indicia of fraud, uh, so that you can help tell people if your neighbors or your friends, uh, you know, encounter these things, as opposed to saying you're going to be targeted for fraud. These are the things that you should be uh, looking out for. That simple phraseology and framework uh, has has led in many cases, from my understanding, to to greater uh, tips and honestly prevention of, of um, people losing their money. Um, I think also it's important to remember that you know the old the elder community um, sometimes uh, actually gets targeted more often than we think. Uh, when I remember talking to folks at the AARP, they were saying they believe that the amount of uh, frauds that they're alerted to is substantially lower than what actually happens. And it's coupled by the fact that people don't want to admit when they've been deceived. And two, there's also a certain, in some circles, stigma attached to potentially being the target um, or the victim of a fraud. Because especially when you're older, people may assume that it's tied to cognitive decline. So uh, the more ideas that people can present us and ways to facilitate conversations, uh, within communities, um, both elder and the broader communities, um, the better off we all are. So please, if you have ideas, I really would love to hear them. So would the staff, um, and I encourage people to, you know, engage on this topic. Okay. Well, our time is up for today. I've, it's been a pleasure, Commissioner Royceman. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, very interesting things to say, and, and I appreciate you taking the time. We will take a 15-minute break and we will return with a panel on market access and retail investors at 1230. Hope to see you then. Thank you, everyone.